right, welcome everyone. It's great to see all of you tonight. Thanks for being here and being a part of this service. I want to make sure I welcome everyone who's joining us online. And I also want to give, as Heidi did in MPTV, a special greeting to all of you who are gathering uh, as our, a part of our Church Anywhere initiative down at the old Southside campus in what we call a microsite. We're glad that you're with us uh, for this service. If you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians and find chapter 8 and just hold that ready for a few minutes, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, first of all, I want to just uh, say a personal thank you to everyone who uh, so graciously participated last week in that special uh, 20th anniversary service. That was just tremendous. Whenever somebody asks me anything about it, I just have the same response. I say, as far as I'm concerned, it was perfect. It was perfect. I loved every minute of it. And so, Thank you. It's been a privilege to be the pastor here for the past 20 years. Uh, one other thing that I want to mention before we look into our text uh, together in this service is we are, we are rolling out a new logo, a new look, doing a rebrand for our church. We've had the same logo for quite a while, and uh, we're rolling that out. And I have a really brief video that I want to show you as a part of that. So uh, let's look at that. I just wanted you to be aware of that. We were trying really hard to have some, uh, some window decals for the cars that we were going to distribute to everyone, but we didn't quite get that done this weekend. So next weekend when you come, we'll have those for you. Uh, we're going to move from what I always called the Jesus swoosh. That's how I described the old logo uh, to something a little bit more traditional. So hopefully you'll like that. I think it looks great. We're beginning, as you already heard, a brand new message series this weekend called A Generous Life. If you're a guest with us, first I want to say how thankful I am that you're with us. It's always a great joy for us to welcome guests into our services. I also want to tell you that every November as a church, and we've been doing this for years, every November as a church, we set aside some time to talk real openly and real honestly about money. And here's why. I'm going to give you two reasons. Here's the first reason. Because we talk about money because no one else does. Now, I want you just to stay with me for a minute. We talk about money because no one else does. Here's something I've discovered over the years. Most people have never spent any meaningful time talking openly and honestly with anyone about money. That's certainly true in my life. I think I've told you probably numerous times over the past 20 years that the only thing my father ever said to me about money was, we don't talk about money. And probably some of you who are here can say the same thing. You have had a similar experience in your life. Uh, the truth is, if your parents or some significant person in your life ever took time uh, to talk with you about money, I'm talking about money in the sense of how to handle money uh, in a smart way, then you're the exception. Because people honestly can go through their whole life without ever having a meaningful conversation with anyone about money. And so here's what happens. Because we don't talk about money, most people live under the false assumption that everyone just understands how money works. Everyone just understands the correct way to handle money. But that's not the case. And because many, if not most people, even highly educated people sometimes are ignorant about money, they, make off, they often make terrible decisions when it comes to money. And don't be offended by the word ignorant. The word ignorant just means lacking in knowledge. 
Because we're ignorant about money, oftentimes we make terrible decisions when it comes to the way we handle money. And so the first reason we talk about money is because no one else does. The second reason why we talk about money is because the Bible talks about money. This is something that you should be very familiar with from our teaching times over the years. I know that still surprises a lot of people, though, who aren't overly familiar with the Bible because it's easy to think, well, we come to the Bible for comfort. We come to the Bible for inspiration. We come to the Bible for moral truth. We don't come to the Bible for financial instruction. But as I've told you repeatedly, there is no better or more practical book than the Bible when it comes to the fundamental truths of how to handle money. In fact, you could limit yourself to just one book in the Bible. The word Bible means book, but you and I know that it's got 66 books inside of it. There are 37 in the Old Testament and 29 in the New Testament. There are 66 books there. But if you just limit yourself to one single book, I'm talking about the Old Testament book of Proverbs, then you can find what I think of as four financial pillars, or excuse me, four pillars, rather, of financial management. I've got them out here on the platform just as some visual reminders. They're keep track, plan ahead, save consistently, and give habitually. We'll talk about those for just a minute uh, as we begin our time together in this service. First of all, the book of Proverbs tells us when it comes to handling money, it's very important to keep track. And all that means, friends, is that you know what's going on in your financial life. You are handling whatever amount of money God has entrusted to you from a position of knowledge. Proverbs 13, 16 is my favorite verse in the book of Proverbs. It says, every prudent man acts out of knowledge. Everyone say knowledge. Knowledge. Every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. I love that verse because it can be applied to virtually any part of our life. Every prudent man acts out of knowledge. We live our lives based on knowledge, and that certainly needs to be true with regard to whatever amount of money God has entrusted to us. I also love these words from Proverbs 27, verses 23 and 24. The proverb writer says, be sure you know the condition of your flocks, give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. Now, the proverb writer was writing about uh, uh, wealth in the context of his day. And so he said that you need to know the condition of your flocks and you need to give attention to your herds. We might say you need to know the condition of your accounts, your investments, your portfolio, things like that. But the bottom line is we need to handle whatever amount of money God has entrusted to us from a position of knowledge. And let me just tell you, my experience when it comes to dealing with people who are struggling with their finances is that they have no real knowledge about what's going on. They don't know how much is coming in. They don't know how much is going out. They don't know how much they have saved. They don't know how much they owe. And you can go on and on and on. And you can't be a good steward of your money if you don't act from a position of knowledge. Honestly, I'm a little bit obsessive when it comes to this first point. And on any given day, I could tell you within a pretty close proximity of how much money I have saved for the future. I could tell you exactly how much money I owe. That's easy because that's a big zero. Somebody say amen to that. 2017, Sandy and I bought a, a different house. We lived in the same house here uh, for 16 years. And uh, we sold it because we wanted something that was a little bit different. And we bought a new house, uh, added a little bit to our mortgage debt, which was not real high. It wasn't a big mortgage because we had a lot of equity in the first house that we sold. But add a little bit to that. And so when we bought that house, we made a plan. We're going to talk about this in coming weeks, the importance of making a plan when it comes to finances. We made a plan to pay off that mortgage. And a couple of months ago, we were able to do that. What a great day that was for us. Zero. 
And so, but here's the deal. You need to handle whatever amount of money God has entrusted to you from a position of knowledge. If you don't, then you have very little chance of being a good steward, a good manager of your money. The second one is to plan ahead. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 5 says, the plans, everyone say plans, plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. A little bit later, Proverbs 21 and verse or 20, yeah, Proverbs 21 and verse 20 says, in the house of the wise are choice or stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. And here's the bottom line. I don't think I need to say any more than this. It just makes no sense, absolutely no sense for you or me or anyone not to plan ahead, not to plan for the future when it comes to our finances. I've told you this uh, many, many times over the years as we've come to November, we've talked about money. I, as a pastor, I've seen this in every church that I've ever served. I've certainly seen it happen here a lot. People live their lives like they're bulletproof, like nothing bad is ever going to happen to them. And that's, that's, not, that's just not the reality of life in this world. And, that, and so one of the reasons why you have to plan ahead is so that you can be prepared when those difficult, unexpected moments come. The third thing is to save consistently. Another great verse in the book of Proverbs, it's one of my favorites, is Proverbs 13, 11. It says, uh, dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Dishonest money, and I've told you many times, the idea behind dishonest money in the original language of the Old Testament is somebody who has a get-rich-quick scheme. Not so much stealing money, but just this idea that, you know, you don't have to save, that you're going to hit, you're going to win the lottery. Every time I go into a convenience store, I get behind people buying lottery tickets, and it irritates the fire out of me. You're going you're gonna, to you know, win the lottery, or, or you're going to get a knock on the door, and there's going to be an attorney from your long-lost uncle who left you millions of dollars or something like that, but that's just not real life for most people. Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. And you don't have to save. You don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to save a lot of money. If you do it consistently over time and take advantage of the miracle of compounding interest, you can save a lot of money from a little if you do it over time. One of the reasons why it's so important for us to plan ahead and to save consistently is because that helps us to avoid the single biggest thing that wrecks our financial lives, and that's debt. That's debt. And then finally, the fourth pillar that we find in the book of Proverbs is to give habitually. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled with overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now, here's the bottom line. I told you this before, and I'm going to tell you it again. Probably until I'm gone, I'm going to be prating out these four things when it comes to money management here at the church. I'm going to be sharing that with you over and over again. I've told you before, if you commit to following this four-fold simple plan, then you can experience financial peace and you can experience financial freedom all the days of your life. So let me give you the absolute best advice that I can give you as we begin here about handling money. And it's really simple. You might want to write this down if you'd like to take notes. You can trust the wisdom and plan of God. When it comes to handling money, you can trust the wisdom and plan of God. I don't care if you have a little or you have a lot. You can trust the wisdom and the plan of God. I'm going to put some words up on the screen from the Old Testament book of Haggai. It's chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And don't worry about it if you have no idea what's in the book of Haggai because most people don't. It's not very long. It's in the Old Testament. It's kind of obscure. But the bottom line was it was a book that was written after Jewish people had returned to their homeland 
after years of having been slaves in the land of Babylon. If you're familiar with Old Testament history, you know that story. And the basic message that the prophet Haggai shared with these people is that in your life, you need to put God first. In every part of your life, you need to put God first. He needs to have first place. And that was true for them when it came to their financial lives, when it came to their their homes and their possessions and things like that. Because listen to these words that he wrote in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. That's how it begins, and that's going to be how it ends. And that reminds me of Proverbs 13, verse 16. It says, every prudent man acts out of knowledge. He says, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages. Just note this, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. How contemporary is that? Written hundreds of years ago. But how contemporary is that for the day and age that we live in today? You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. And in this book, God gives us a plan for being good stewards, for being good managers of whatever amount of money he has given to us. And you can trust in the wisdom and plan of God. And that's really something that I want you to hang on to. Now, having all said all of that, we're going to turn our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because while we're going to talk about each one of these pillars of financial management over the next few weeks, uh, the main thing we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about living a generous life. The fourth pillar is to give habitually. We're going to talk about generosity and living a generous life. And so, uh, in order to do that, uh, we're going to look uh, at some different passages in the New Testament that help us to, to discover what generosity really is. And the reason why we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how to live a generous life is because I have never met a single person who didn't want to live a generous life. I've never met a single person who didn't want, at least on some level in their life, to live a generous life. I've never met anybody who, want, who knowingly wanted to live a stingy, selfish life. People want to live generous lives, but discovering how to do that is a completely different thing. I was reading a blog several years ago by a man named Randy uh, Alcorn, and he talked about a man who pulled up in front of a downtown office building in a brand new shiny Mercedes. He went inside, and later when he came out of the building, there was a boy who was standing there admiring his car, kind of just walking around the car and, and really admiring how beautiful it was. The boy looked at the, man, at the man and said, is this your car? And the man said, yes, and added, my brother gave it to me as a gift. And the boy was a amazed. He was dumbfounded. He said, you mean your brother gave it to you and it didn't cost you a thing? And the man said, that's right. And the boy immediately said, wow, I wish I had. No. He said, I wish I could be a brother like that. How many of you can relate to that? You wish you could be a brother like that. I've never met anyone who didn't want to live a generous life. But we have to understand the truth about generosity from God's perspective from the wisdom of God to really be able to enact a plan to be generous in our lives. And that brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And so if you've got your Bible open there and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the scripture. If you're a guest with us, again, we're so thankful that you're here. And I'll just tell you that uh, uh, we always make the public reading of scripture a part of our service. And because we have such respect for God's word, we stand 
out of respect when we read it. I'm going to read the first seven verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here we go. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. How many of you got a notebook in front of you that has that says, that very phrase on the front of the notebook? Don't you love those notebooks? I love those notebooks. I took about a dozen of them. Don't tell anybody, though, okay? I love those things. I love them. All right. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about an incredible description of generosity that came from a group of churches that Paul refers to as the Macedonian churches. Here's the deal. There was a point in one of Paul's missionary journeys where he began to collect an offering for the church in Jerusalem. Now, let's just remind ourselves about that church in Jerusalem. It was the very first church uh, after the resurrection You can read about the beginning of that church in Acts chapter 2 on what's called the day of Pentecost when thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were in Jerusalem for this day of celebration. And the Holy Spirit showed up in a mighty way and great things happened and Peter preached the very first gospel sermon. And as the result of that sermon, uh, there are people responded by saying, brothers, what shall we do? Now that we know this, now that we've heard this, this incredible message about Jesus, what shall we do? And about 3,000 people were baptized that day and that was the beginning of the church. That's Acts chapter 2. You get to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, and you read uh, that it has already grown significantly. Acts 4 and verse 4 says, but many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Started with 3,000. Now they number, the number of men is 5,000. That didn't even count their families, their wives, and their children. This was the very first mega church. But here's the deal. It was also an extremely poor church. It was an extremely poor church because it was populated by what we'll call pilgrims and by persecuted Jews. What's a pilgrim? Well, a pilgrim was someone who had traveled to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost from some other part of the world and never went back home, okay? Because they heard the message of Jesus, they responded, they never went back home. And so now they're just, I'm going to stay here. I don't got a job. I don't have a place to live. I don't have any resources but this is where I know God wants me to be. And so the church is now caring for those people. And then there were persecuted Jews, Jews who had uh, accepted Christ as their Savior and expressed their faith in Christ by being baptized, were now part of this church, and they were being persecuted because of that decision. And then you add to that this third thing that caused the church to be very poor, and that was that they were together, they planted this church at a time when there was a depressed Roman economy. In fact, the Roman economy was so bad at the time that there was a period where they suspended taxes because there was just no way for the people to pay them. So you got this huge church with serious financial problems. 
And so when Paul began his third missionary journey, he decided, I'm going to collect money. I'm going to collect an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And as he encourages the church in Corinth, we're reading from 2 Corinthians. As he encourages the, encourages the church in Corinth to give, he holds up a group of churches called the Macedonian churches as examples of generosity. And these were the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, and the church in Berea. And so what we see in the first seven verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is several fundamental principles of generosity. In fact, don't gag on this, I got eight of them. Eight of them and only 14 minutes and 50 seconds on the clock. But don't worry because I'm going to do this so fast that you're going to, it's unbelievable. As I've told you before, you're going to be sitting at breakfast tomorrow morning and looking at each other and say, can you believe how fast Pastor Chris went through those eight points? That was amazing. That was amazing. So if you'd like to take notes, we're going to dive right in, okay? I'm going to tell you eight things about generosity. Number one, it's motivated by grace. It's motivated by grace. You go back, and we're going to just start in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, and we're going to work our way through the list. Verse 1 says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace. Everyone say grace. Grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So as he begins to hold up the Macedonian churches as examples of generosity, the first thing he says about them is that they were motivated in their generosity by grace, by the grace of God. The word grace in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word charis. And the best definition is it is the unmerited favor of God. Let me make that even more simple. Grace is what God has done for you that you could never, ever earn and never, ever deserve. Grace is what God has done for all of us that we could never, ever earn and never deserve. And that's what motivated the generosity of these Macedonian churches. They weren't motivated by philanthropy. They weren't motivated by human kindness. They weren't motivated by a tax deduction at the end of the year. They weren't motivated by any human thing. They were motivated to be generous because by his grace, God had been so generous to them. I wonder if there's anybody else here tonight who could say the same thing about their life. God has been so generous to me. I think we probably all could if we gave it any thought at all. I have no problem in my personal life relating to this reality of generosity flowing from God's generosity to me. That's the miracle or one of the miracles of grace. God has been so incredibly generous with us that it motivates us to be generous with others. Here's the second thing about generosity. It's separate from circumstances. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 2. Paul goes on and says about these Macedonian churches, out of the most severe trial, note this, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, I want you to look up here and listen to me really close. This is a powerful truth about generosity, real generosity. It's separate from circumstances. These Macedonian churches were not generous because they were in such good financial positions, because all of the people in the churches were so financially strong, because the truth is their financial circumstances were really bad. Verse 2 tells us that they were going through a severe trial, and then it adds this, that they were experiencing their own extreme poverty. The word there for extreme in the original language is two different Greek words, katabathos, and it literally means extremely deep. Think rock bottom. Their financial lives had hit rock bottom. That's literally the meaning of these words. 
They were rock bottom when it came to their finances, and they were experiencing poverty. The word he uses for poverty, it means destitute. These people were destitute. They were suffering the severe trial, and I'll tell you what it was. That was They were being persecuted by the Romans, and they were being persecuted by the Jews, and they were experiencing extreme poverty on top of that. But in spite of that, they were willing to participate in this offering for the people in the church in Jerusalem. Now, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't ever want to offend anybody. But I got to tell you, it's difficult for me to read and understand the generosity, the reality of the generosity of the Macedonian churches, given their circumstances, and then understand when someone says, you know what, it's just not a good time for me to be generous. Or I just simply can't afford to be generous. Because genuine and heartfelt generosity is something that happens separate from our circumstances. Here's what we need to understand about generosity. And if you don't remember anything else I say, then you remember this. First and foremost, generosity is not an amount. It's an attitude of the heart. Generosity is not an amount. It's an attitude of the heart. It's not something that happens only to wealthy people. The poorest person you can know could very well be the most generous person you know because generosity is not an amount. It's an attitude of the heart. The second thing I will tell you is that one of the main reasons why so many people aren't generous today, even though in their heart they may want to be, is because they're simply not being overall good stewards of whatever amount of money God has entrusted to them. They don't keep track. They don't plan ahead. They don't save consistently. And as a result, they don't what? Give habitually. There's no generosity in their life. This is an important truth about generosity. Here's the third thing. It's joyful. Generosity is joyful. We go back to verse 2, and Paul wrote out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I don't think that requires any real explanation. These churches didn't give reluctantly. They didn't give out of a sense of duty. Paul didn't strong arm them. They didn't feel like they had to give because they were uh, being pressured. They gave joyfully because they had first and foremost joy in the Lord. And they knew that even though they were experiencing an extreme uh, trial and extreme poverty, God was gonna continue to meet their needs. They gave because they knew it was the right thing to do. And they gave because they knew that they can, you can never outgive God. How many of you know that's true? Somebody say amen to that. No matter what you give, you can never outgive God. Number four, generosity is sacrificial. Verse 3, we just keep working our way through the text. Paul says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They gave sacrificially. They gave as much as they were able, and then what they do? They gave even more. And I think that's a great definition of sacrificial giving, to give as much as you're able and then find a way to give even more. When it came to giving this offering for the church in Jerusalem, these Macedonian churches, the people in these churches were not concerned for themselves. They were concerned for brothers and sisters in Jerusalem that they would probably never, ever meet, at least not this side of heaven. Most of us, and I'll put myself at the top of the list, have a lot to learn about what it means, what it really means to give sacrificially. I, if I were to be honest, there have been times in my life when we have gone through capital stewardship campaigns or we were doing money-raising campaigns for something that was an incredibly worthy cause here at the church. There have been times in my life when I feel like we gave a lot, 
But I have never, ever, if I'm going to be honest, never, ever genuinely, truly given sacrificially, given to the point where I didn't know what tomorrow would bring. That's what these believers did. They gave sacrificially. Number five, the fifth thing about generosity is it's voluntary. This is really important. I want to make sure that you get this. It's voluntary. We'll put verse 3 back on the screen. Paul said, For I testified that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, they gave as much as they could, and then they gave even more. They gave sacrificially. And then he says at the very end, he says, Entirely on their own. Entirely on their own. It's interesting, if you study that phrase entirely on their own, in the original language, Paul just uses one word that is translated into the English phrase entirely on their own. It's the word atharitos, and it means to choose your own course of action. When it came to their giving, they chose their own course of action, and they chose a sacrificial course. Because our giving is to be, our generosity is to be completely voluntary. I want everyone to understand that. No one should ever give under duress or because they feel like they don't have any other choice. Our giving, genuine generosity, comes from a voluntary spirit. Later in this study, as we go through it, it's a four-week study, we're gonna, I'm going to talk to you about a certain level of giving, which is something I do every year. But what I want you to know first and foremost when it comes to generosity is that you need to choose the course of action for you and your family. You need to choose the level of giving that you and your family, the level of generosity that you and your family are going to be involved in as you go through life, whether it's, whether it's generosity in the church or generosity outside the church in some other uh, area of life. Number six, hey, Number six, this is fast. Generosity is a privilege. It's a privilege. We move on now. We go to verse four. And Paul says about these Macedonian churches, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And once again, Paul is just stressing to us that their giving, their generosity was voluntary. They weren't pressured. They didn't feel pressured to do this. They didn't give under duress. It was voluntary. It was just the opposite of duress. They asked, they pleaded for the opportunity to participate in this offering. They pleaded for the privilege of meeting the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ, again, who they would probably never, ever meet in person this side of heaven, because generosity is a privilege. Of all the things that you and I are privileged to do in this life, being generous is one of them. Number seven, generosity is worship. It's worship. And we move on to verse five. Paul says, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So when it came to their generosity, their first step was to be surrendered to the Lord. Their second step was be, to be uh, participants, as a result of the surrender, to be participants in this generosity. If you look there in verse 7, put, take your finger and you put it on the word first. It says there in verse 7, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. That's a great verse, uh, excuse me, that's a great word in the original language. It's the Greek word protos. Protos, and it means first in priority. God was their first priority. It was the first priority of their lives. And that's a big part of why these Macedonian churches were so generous. Their priority was first to give themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord 
And as a result of that, generosity, just like every other spiritual act, just like every other spiritual discipline, became a natural overflow of that priority. When God has first place in our lives, we don't have a problem doing the things that God calls us to do, one of which is to be generous. In fact, the Bible describes the supreme act of worship as giving yourself wholeheartedly to God. Look at these words on the screen from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then he says, This is your spiritual act of worship. Everybody say worship. Worship. Giving your life over to God is an act of worship. And he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed now by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When you give yourself first to God, then you discover the will of God for your life, one of which is to live a generous life. And you get, you get to choose and decide what that generous life looks like, but you're committed to it as a result of having God as the first priority in your life. And then finally, he says in verse uh, 7, the eighth thing about generosity, it's passionate. Generosity is passionate. Verse 7 says, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. What does that mean? It means that generosity does not take place in a vacuum. It doesn't take place isolated from other Christian virtues and other Christian disciplines. We as believers need to pursue generosity in our lives with the same passion that we pursue every other part of our Christian lives. Now, I should have put a slide together where I put all of these eight things on the slide, uh, but let me just say them to you again. Okay, so this is what we learn about generosity from the Macedonian churches here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Generosity is motivated by grace. It's separate from circumstances. You're not generous just when you have the ability to be generous. You're generous when there's a need because generosity is your heart, your heart. It's joyful. It's sacrificial. It's voluntary. It's a privilege, it's worship, it's a part of our worship, and it's passionate. That's what we learn about generosity. Now, if I put, if I, like I said, I should put it on a slide. If I put all those things up there and I ask you this question, pick out one thing, one thing in that list of eight that really resonates the most with you and hang on to that. Hang on to that for the rest of this series. Hang on to that as long as you can. What, what, what would it be? What would the one thing that you learn about the reality of genuine generosity that really motivates you the most. I can tell you what it is for me. It's the very first thing. Generosity is motivated by grace. Listen, friends, when I think of the way God has blessed my life for the past 63 years, it is absolutely overwhelming to me. I'm not alone in that tonight, am I? When I think about my, the wife that God has given to me, and the incredible blessing she is to me. And the truth that whatever I do, wherever I go, whatever I might accomplish in my life, I probably would not have ever accomplished it apart from her by my side. Then that's overwhelming to me. And I think about my children who grew up in a pastor's home and still love Jesus and still love his church. That's overwhelming to me. I think about my brothers and my sisters. I think about my friends. I think about all the churches I've served. I think about the love that you have poured into my life over the years. 
I think about the way I went from a time in my life where I didn't know if I was going to live or die to be standing here preaching like this to you. I am absolutely overwhelmed by the generosity of God. And I don't need eight reasons to be generous. That alone would be enough. Somebody say amen to that. What would it be for you? Which one would it be for you? Motivated by grace, separate from circumstances, joyful, sacrificial, voluntary. It's a privilege. It's worship. It's passionate. Which would it be for you? I'm going to put one more verse upon the screen, and I'm going to close. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. The Apostle Paul, just in the very next chapter from where we are in chapter 8 tonight, says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. That's a simple verse, and we understand it in theory, because you reap what you sow. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. But you know what I find that we oftentimes want to do? We want to we flip it. We want to reverse it. And, and we, we want to look at it backwards because we would rather sow after we reap. But that's not the way God's process works. You can't reverse the process. God says you reap what you sow. That means you reap the promises you reap after you sow. So if the harvest you're experiencing in your life right now today isn't all that you want it to be, it's not too late to change that. You just need to decide in your life that you're going to sow seeds of generosity everywhere you go, and you're going to trust in the harvest of God. I don't know why any of us wouldn't do that, because I don't know anyone who doesn't want to live a generous life. I want you to pray with me. Father, thank you so much for our time to study the Scriptures. And I pray your spirit would uh, really, really uh, convict our hearts with the truth of your word. Not my words, your word. And I pray that we would, we would identify that one thing in that list of eight that really resonates with us. And we would say in our own lives, we would say, Lord, help me to never forget this. Lord, embed this truth on my heart so that it can help me live a generous life. And generosity is not just about money. We have the ability to be generous in so many ways in our lives. Help generosity to be an attitude of our hearts. We love you and we thank you for all you've done for us. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Stand together. We're going to sing a song of worship before we're dismissed.